This is the Green Blues Show, the latest news, a bit of blues. Today, the social costs of carbon outstrip the total value of the oil and gas industry by a country mile. Reflections on this rock humans live on and what happens when it melts and the plight of children in war-ravaged Yemen. Welcome to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Here's a trivia question for you. Which U.S. presidents had pets in the White House? Answer, all of them. That is, until Donald Trump. Donald Trump is the first president of the United States to have no pets at all. The tradition of presidential pet ownership goes back to Thomas Jefferson, who shared the Oval Office with a mockingbird and two bear cubs. Warren Harding had an Airedale terrier named Laddie Boy. Theodore Roosevelt had 30 pets, and his cousin Franklin Delano's dog, Fowla, earned pooch fame on FDR's foreign trips. Gerald Ford kept company with Shan, a Siamese cat, as did Ford's immediate successor, Jimmy Carter, whose Siamese cat was called Misty Malarkey Ying Yang. Barack Obama had his two Portuguese water dogs, Boa and Sonny, and Bill Clinton had a cat named Socks and a lab named Buddy. Although we can assume presidential pet lovers just loved animals, there were other, more self-interested reasons for them to own pets and to be public about it. Pets were good for their image, made them more likable. Of course, having pets is good for your health. Pets reduce stress, ease loneliness, boost cardiovascular function. Dogs must be taken out and exercised, so must dog owners. Pet owners befriend other pet owners. Of America's 126 million families, probably the stats are similar in Canada, about 85 million own at least one pet. Clearly, Americans are huge animal lovers. Donald Trump, however, does not appear to be one of them. Ex-wife Ivana says he doesn't like dogs. Trump was reportedly embarrassed to learn that Vice President Mike Pence had several pets, calling Pence low class and a yokel. Trump has trashed Obama-era laws on the humane treatment of caged chickens. When images of his big game-hunting sons Eric and Donald Jr. holding up a dead leopard appeared on social media, Trump defended them. Upon hearing that the circus had halted the use of elephants on humanitarian grounds, Trump famously declared he'd never go to the circus again. At one point, Donald Trump appeared to soften vis-a-vis -vis pets. A wealthy donor offered him an olden doodle, a golden retriever poodle mix, but the Trump dog encounter was short-lived and ended up going to the dogs. This is the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Please don't dog it around. 
Nothing like a warm, fluffy pet, be it a poodle or a pussycat. Pussycat Blues, a 1930 recording, Big Bill Brunzi on guitar, exchanging double entendre with Jane Lucas, Georgia Tom Dorsey on piano. Risque tunes like this were all the rage back in the Depression years. You are listening to the Green Blues Show. I'm David Kattenberg. Here's a sobering fact from the morass of discussion and debate about the fate of Canada's oil and gas industry. Listen to this. The total financial assets of the big five oil and gas companies working in Alberta's tar sands is estimated to be about $250 billion. $250 billion. The environmental and social costs of mining and burning all of their bitumen would cost the industry at least $320 billion if it had to pay these costs. The total gross domestic product of the province of Alberta is only $300 billion. So, in other words, neither the tar sands majors nor the government of Alberta have deep enough pockets to cover the full social, developmental, and human health costs of burning fossil fuels at business-as-usual rates, which seems to be what they want to do. Such is the conclusion of a recent report from the Parkland Institute based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. What the Paris Agreement means for Alberta's oil sands majors is a product of the Institute's corporate mapping project. I reached lead author Ian Hussey by Skype. 
Can you tell me what does the Paris Agreement mean for Alberta's oil sands majors in, in your view when summing up the, the findings of your report? What does the Paris Agreement mean for those five major oil sands producers? Yeah, um, so the Paris Agreement for Alberta's big five oil sands majors means that business as usual is, is not an option, uh, which unfortunately they're, they're acting kind of like um, nothing's really changed in the world as far as people's recognition of the, the social and financial risks of, of climate change. And so for these five companies in the long term, the Paris Agreement actually means um, they need to phase out uh, oil production, uh, which obviously is, is the base of their business model. So that's it's really concerning for them. Um, but right now, one of the things we looked at was you know, what governments are doing to, to regulate the industry, to, to lead to that uh, outcome of eventually transitioning off of fossil fuel production. And unfortunately, the Alberta government, as well as the Canadian governments, are also not taking climate change as seriously as, as we would hope. Um, so for instance, Alberta has uh, what's called the emissions cap. So that is a cap on emissions attributable to oil production in Alberta. And that emissions cap is, is 100 megatons or 100 million tons of carbon per year, um, which is only for the production of the oil, not the combustion of the oil at the, the consumer end or industrial consumer end. Um, and so that cap allows oil production to increase about 50% above 2014 levels. And the problem with that is um, every country that has signed on to the Paris Agreement, which is almost every country in the world, has um, an implied carbon budget or the amount of overall uh, carbon pollution that your entire national economy can produce on an annual basis. You know, so for Canada to meet its um, Paris uh, commitment, um, which is really a commitment in the year 2050, what that realistically means um, is we need to phase out oil production by 2050. And that's on top of already doing a number of things that are already underway on a provincial, territorial, and federal level, such as um, carbon taxes or improving public transit or plugging, plugging leaky buildings uh, or energy efficiency in general. So we can do all of those things, but we're still not going to meet our Paris commitment if we don't phase out the oil industry by, by 2050. That's, that's a difficult uh, message to put forward, and it's a difficult conversation for Canadians to have. But in reality, you know, our federal government right now uh, is, is trying to meet um, the interim uh, target for Paris. And so every country has either produced a, a target for the year 2020 or 2030. And so for Canada, um, we've largely um, dismissed our 2020 target. There's no way we're going to meet it. We're trying to meet our 2030 target. And what's come in the news in the last week or so is, in fact, the federal government has been telling us that, you know, with all the measures they're doing uh, beyond, you know, sufficient regulation of the oil industry, um, we were going to be 66 megatons um, short of our 2030 target. And that's a target on the way to meeting our 2050 target, of course, uh, under the Paris Agreement. And so in the last week, what the news is, is we're two to three times um, further away from meeting our 2030 target um, than the, the federal government has been reporting to us. And what your report says in a number of spots is that emphasizes is that this energy transition to low carbon in the next three decades requires 
countries like Canada to start cranking down now. We can't be waiting. We've got to be cranking down continuously or we'll never meet the, the two degree target. And yet the, the big five oil sands producers are forecasting increases in production. And, and astonishingly, the Trudeau government says this, this action not only can go hand in hand with Canada's com reduction commitments, but actually has to that we can't achieve our, our reduction commitments if the oil sands producers are not allowed to expand. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the prime minister, um, honestly, that's, that's fanciful thinking. And, and I'm sure his staff are aware and, and are briefing him on the actual climate mass and, and what is required for Canada to meet its 2030 targets or its 2050 targets under the Paris Agreement. Um, so right now, I mean, one of the things we say in the report is, you know, the industry is acting as if um, it's just business as usual, and in part, they're, they're making a bet that provincial and federal governments are, are not going to regulate them in line with the amount of decarbonization that is actually needed for, for Canada to meet its international commitments. And it's possible that these five companies are going to win that bet. It's also possible that they're going to lose it, and in fact, regulations will ratchet up to a point where you know, we actually meet our international commitments. And the unfortunate thing um, for these five companies, which are publicly traded companies on, on the stock market, is they're not explaining that financial risk to their business, to uh, the general public, or their shareholders. And so one of the, the things we talk about in the report is this trend in, um, in, in the corporate world of uh, increasing disclosure of uh, various things to do with climate change. So what is the financial risk to your corporation um, if we are to meet a two degree or one and a half degree um, target? Um, how are you modeling um, various scenarios of, of regulations or carbon prices um, to, to look at how that's going to affect your business? These sorts of questions um, we believe uh, not only the big five oil sands producers, but a number of other oil and gas companies of, of that size or bigger in the world are already making these calculations internally. Really what they're trying to do is return a profit to their shareholders. And their shareholders, in the case of the big five oil sands producers, are actually, majority of them are not Canadian. Much of that money is, is coming from the United States. But in the case of, say, Husky, um, Hong Kong's uh, richest man, Lee Kai-shen, actually owns the majority of Husky Energy. And he's about to retire and his son's going to take over his, his business portfolio, but still, you know, that is ultimately who the board of directors as well as the executive of these corporations are actually accountable for. They're not accountable in the same way to the general public or, or the government because ultimately, you know, the people who pay their salaries um, and tell them what to do at their annual general meetings are, are shareholders. Can you tell me about social cost of carbon analysis? Uh, sure. So the social cost of carbon is, is a way of pricing carbon pollution. So it's the, same, uh, it's the same idea as a carbon tax. It's also the same idea as um, in, in previous years, you know, we, we, we had gas taxes, which we still have, of course. But the, the social cost of carbon or a carbon price um, can be applied to various things. So in Alberta, we have uh, a consumer carbon tax, which is for gas at the pump and home heating bills. We also have um, an industrial carbon tax, 
that industrial tax is applied to large industrial emitters, uh, which could be a, a coal-fired electricity plant, could also be uh, an oil sands producer. So if, if they produce a certain amount of pollution um, over and above that threshold, they're, they're paying um, a tax onto, onto that, uh, that pollution. So in, in the report, what we're talking about is applying a carbon price, or if you like, the social cost of carbon, to the reserves of these um, five uh, major oil sands producers. Which reflects the true value uh, of the cost, so it reflects the true costs associated with actually burning that fuel, which would include costs that currently industries and governments externalize, or industries externalize social costs. Exactly. That's that's exactly it. Which would bring carbon carbon taxes up to something like two hundred dollars a ton. Uh, well, um, sort of. So, I mean, let let me take a step back for a second. And so, what we did is we applied three different levels of carbon prices to their reserves. And so, we applied a, a fifty dollar carbon price just to their proven reserves, which are reserves that they are going to dig out of the ground in the next five to ten years. And even with that uh, $50 price, just on the proven reserves, um, the conclusion is really striking. Um, that uh, value of that carbon pollution, if those reserves are digged up and ultimately burned, is about $320 billion. The, uh, the overall value of these five corporations is uh, much less than $320 billion, it's about $250 billion. And not only that, $320 billion is actually bigger than Alberta's annual GDP. The size of our economy is, in any given year, 310 to $315 billion. So the price of the pollution from burning just the proven reserves with a very conservative carbon price of $50 is, is larger than Alberta's entire economy and, and is a larger value than, than these five corporations. And so what we also did is said, like, okay, well, generally economists agree that $50 carbon price is, is actually quite conservative. So the carbon price, uh, for instance, in Norway, they introduced a, a $50 carbon price in 1992. In Canada, we're going to get to a $50 carbon price in 2022, 30 years after Norway did. Uh, in Sweden, their current carbon price, uh, carbon tax, sorry, is, is about $150. And so... You know, in North America, we're, we're kind of um, slow in the game into uh, actually taxing pollution. The, the United uh, Nations Global Compact um, says the, the carbon price right now should be about $100. And we applied that um, to not only the proven reserves, which are going to be immediately extracted, but also the potential reserves or the overall reserves of these five companies. And when you do that at $100, um, carbon price, you end up with about a trillion dollars in, in um, the cost of that pollution from, from digging up all those reserves. And would such a, would such a huge value more, more accurate, accurately reflect the full, the full environmental and social human costs of burning the fuel? Is that the purpose of raising carbon taxes to 150 or $200 a ton? Absolutely. So yes, many, many economists would agree that the cur current carbon price um, should be between $100 and $200 a ton. And many also, I mean, uh, not only to, to put a proper sort of monetary value on that pollution, but it's also, economists are talking about 
what does the carbon tax need to be at in order to really change corporate and consumer behavior? And um, the honest answer is it probably at least $150 uh, a ton. So, you know, right now, if we have, a, I think it's a $30 uh, consumer uh, carbon tax in Alberta, you know, it's not necessarily going to um, change consumer behavior. They, they might um, purchase a little bit less gas at the pump. Um, and on the industrial level, um, you know, a, a 20 or $30 carbon tax is, is only about um, 25 cents per barrel of oil they're producing. And so if, if you're making um, 10 or $20 or even more on a barrel of oil and you've got to pay a 25 cent carbon tax on that, it's, it's, it's not even a speed bump, right? You're not really going to consider that, you know, an impediment to you uh, producing more oil. The, the carbon tax is, is just not where it needs to be to shift consumer behavior or um, oil producing a corporation's behavior. And, you know, credibly speaking, you know, we can't um, reduce our emissions anywhere in line with the Paris Agreement if, if we don't reduce oil production. Like the industry and government uh, are really pushing for industry to be less GHG intensive. So that means um, produce a little bit less pollution per barrel of oil you're producing. But they're also saying that the total level of pollution is going to go up over time because the total level of production of oil is going to go up over time. So really what that means is if we're going to meet our 2030 targets or our, our eventual 2050 targets under the Paris Agreement, first of all, we have to talk about increased regulation. Like a carbon tax at, at whatever level is just not going to do it. Like we need a lower emissions cap. Right now, um, as I said, it's 100 megatons, um, and that's almost a 50% increase over 2014 levels. That's just simply too high. And they're kind of boasting about that. Trudeau and Notley are boasting that uh – you know, they've introduced a cap on emissions from, from tar sands. Exactly. And the cap is, is so high that effectively it's not a cap. It's it's a license to increase oil production by 50% above 2014 levels. So, I mean, the cap is important. It should be reformed, though, to be, you know, somewhere in the range of 70 to 80 megatons. Um, and it should be, uh, the law should be in, uh, reformed in such a way that, from 2020 to 2050, in fact, the cap goes down a couple megatons every year till eventually it's zero. Because again, under the Paris Agreement, we need to get to zero emissions attributable to oil production in order to credibly overall um, meet our Paris Agreement obligations. I mean, there's, there's other things that the government should be talking about and, and, and passing laws about. Such as? I mean, you talk about regulations. What other kinds of regulations are required? Right. Um, so a moratorium on, on new leases for extraction. So right now companies are, continue to buy land leases uh, and the rights to exploit um, lands within the oil sands area. I mean, that makes no sense if, if our overall goal should be reducing um, uh, oil production. The other thing, too, is um, we don't need new pipelines. I mean, right now, we have enough pipeline and rail capacity to meet the 100 megaton emissions cap. And again, the 100 megatons emissions cap is, is, is far too high. So adding more pipeline capacity at a time when we need to be reducing oil production um, makes no sense at all. I mean, the other thing, too, is that right now, 
uh, in Alberta, we've, we're phasing out coal-fired electricity. The government has come up with a plan for transitioning communities and workers that are traditionally reliant on the coal industry. And so we need a similar plan for oil. I mean, we have a long lead time here. We're talking about a 30-year period to uh, ramp down oil production. So what's going to happen to communities and workers that have traditionally been reliant on the oil industry in Alberta or even in Saskatchewan? Um, you know, we, we need some sort of plan to talk about um, uh, diversifying those economies, having them be more resilient in, in, a, in a climate safe way, um, potentially having to retrain or relocate workers, particularly in the, in the Fort McMurray area. Um, so that, that's all going to cost uh, money, but it's ultimately what we need to do to, to be part of um, you know, a climate safe world and for Canada to meet its international uh, commitments under the Paris Agreement. Do you, do you have any hope in closing, Ian Hussey, that the federal government, federal and provincial governments in Canada will suddenly wake up when the proportions of the crisis bec become clear enough and do what's required to achieve the reductions that we need to stave off the worst repercussions of climate change? Uh, I have hope in, uh, in social movements, and particularly a number of young people uh, here in Alberta and, and elsewhere in, in Canada and, and you know, around the world are really pushing elected officials uh, in unions, in governments, uh, pushing corporations to be more accountable, uh, to have more realistic measures. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm also, uh, you know, a political economist, so I'm, I'm realistic about the fact that the Liberal uh, Party federally is, is known to be tied to the banks on Bay Street, and, um, you know, some of those banks are highly leveraged in investing in oil, and um, the Conservative uh, Party on the federal level is traditionally conne connected to the extractive industry, so oil corporations and coal and gas, and so, you know, both of those federal parties have these deep ties either to finance capital or, you know, in industrial corporations. And, you know, it, it, I think it's realistic to be skeptical uh, about whether those parties are, are actually going to serve um, ultimately the, the public interest on, on this file. You know, these are real questions that are being put to the electorate, uh, both provincially and federally, and, and, you know, we'll see where people are at. Ian Hussey, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Green Blue Show. Okay, thanks for having me. Ian Hussey is co-author of What the Paris Agreement Means for Alberta's Oil Sands Majors, released back in January by the Parkland Institute based at the University of Alberta in Edmonton. Learn more about the report and its conclusions at greenplanetmonitor.net. Pondering stuff like this, the question comes to mind, how long, like, how long? Station master saying, 
lower time My baby passed this way Tell me how long Oh, tell me how long performed by Southern Ontario's very own original sloth band some years ago. Tom Evans on clarinet, Chris Whiteley on trumpet, and Ken Whiteley on guitar, all three on vocals. On Big Island in Hawaii, Earth's tectonic system put on a big show, and it ain't over yet. Molten magma bursting out of cracks in highway asphalt, devouring cars, rolling slowly downhill towards the camera. Earth is indeed in motion. From the Earth Chronicle's seemingly bottomless vault, here are some voices on that. This planet is still vigorously changing. Tectonic processes, that's the word they use in geology for, for basically um, these kind of dynamic processes when rocks start crashing together. The earth is convecting, it is mixing. I'm trying to give you a feeling for how dynamic the balance is of the surface on which we live. Language of the rock. I see the rock. It speaks to me in a language all its own. I sense I've heard its words long ago. Relative of mine from days gone by, whispering, open yourself and pay heed to my cry. We are one traveling the traveled path. Walk upon me, stay a while, feel me between your toes, envelop me, take me in the bosom of your soul. Gather me in your own unique collection, remembering I will always be here, no fear of rejection. I am rock, you are man, you will return, we are the same. To me, and to many people, I guess, they're like people, they're rock people. You, you look at them uh, from one angle, if you will, and you look them from, look, look at the opposite angle or the other uh, end, say, uh, the other direction, opposite from where you were originally looking at them, you get a whole different perspective. It's just like people, you know? To me, that's what they are, it's like rock people, you know? 
and uh, for uh, for anyone who's got the time, they should sit sometime quietly and talk to the rocks. Talk to them. They're real. Whether they respond or not, who knows? Find out. We're sitting tonight in the middle of Jasper National Park with a bit of wind playing around the door, but otherwise it's pretty nice weather. And thinking about what Lester House said about rocks. I'm a geologist, so I really get a kick out of what people think about rocks. Of course, Lester has a very spiritual side. I think it's, it's really, it really dominates his life, and, and he likes to think that everything has a kind of life to it, a sort of spirituality. And I suppose it might, um, but I was brought up to, uh, as, as a geologist at, at university, uh, thinking about rocks scientifically. And when, when Lester said that rocks t might talk to him, to a geologist, rocks do speak in, in a sense. Uh, when I sit down with a rock outcrop, uh, it's kind of a friend of mine. I know the name of the formation and how old it is, and what kind of rock it is, and I can recognize it all over the Rockies. So uh, the botanists know their, their plant names and geologists know the formation names. So the rocks tell me things too. They don't tell me spiritual things. I don't listen to them for guidance about my life or about the way of the world. Maybe Lester can get that out of them. But they tell me things about the world the way I see it. Uh, with the, uh, You might think of it as a cold eye of a scientist. One of the great dreams of all the geologists who work determining the age of rocks is to find the oldest rock. Right at the moment, the oldest rock is in the Northwest Territories of Canada. Used to be in Greenland, used to be in Australia, used to be in Southern Africa, but it's now in the Northwest Territories, not too far from Yellowknife. And it's about 3.98 billion years old. Once we start getting a bigger and better record, more fragments to examine scattered around the planet, uh, it's interesting that nearly all of the rocks are submarine. It almost looks as if the world had a, a sort of almost completely globe-encircling ocean. It was also very volcanic, just thousands of Hawaii's floating around in an ocean. Quite an exciting place. The Earth is a heat engine. You, it's very easy evidence, everybody can see it, the evidence for this heat that is being lost. First of all, we have volcanoes. We have volcanoes in two belts in the world, all the way around the Pacific, a rim of fire, volcanoes all around, from uh, Kamchatka up uh, and the Kuriles down, down the west coast of North America, down the west coast of South America round and, and, uh, and of course in, in, uh, in, in Southeast Asia and Japan. You've got these uh, large volcanoes blowing off every now and again. You've got another belt running right, 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 right around the world, a little bit north of the equator, uh, which is the um, uh, Alps, Himalayan, and down into Southeast Asia belt. These two belts, the Circum-Pacific and, the, and the, the, uh, the Himalayan belt right across the center are also areas of high earthquake activity. Catastrophes happen all the time. Major earthquakes happen in these two belts. They are as a result of the plates that we live on now, the North and South America, uh, Africa plate, the, the, uh, uh, the various plates which have come together to form Asia and so on. These plates are all moving. The speed at which they move is quite easily measurable by accurate uh, survey systems. It's a few centimeters a year, but uh, over 50 million years, that's a long, a long way. Work it out. In order of appearance, 
You've heard some of these voices before. Bill Fife, Robin Riddyhoff, Mary Lou Kelly, Lester House, Ben Gad, and Digby McLaren. Find out who all these people were and are at greenplanetmonitor.net. You are listening to the Green Blues Show here on 95.9 FM CKW in Winnipeg, Canada, or somewhere around the world, courtesy of the World Wide Web. I'm David Kattenberg. British guitar hero Davy Graham. Graham was one of those rare guitar players who defied categorization. He played the blues quite virtuosically, also very traditional British folk and wonderful Islamic music such as this piece, Yemeni Taksim. Speaking of Yemen, little Yemen, on the southern margin of the Arabian Peninsula. In the throes of civil war since 2015, pitting Shiite Houthi rebels in the capital Sana'a and northern half of the country against government loyalists in the south, Yemen's deposed president is supported militarily by a coalition of Gulf states led by Saudi Arabia. The Yemen Data Project has reported that about a third of some 17,000 airstrikes have been on non-military targets. Just last week, an airstrike demolished the presidential palace in rebel-held Sana'a, killing six and injuring 30. 10,000 Yemeni civilians have been killed since 2015, and some three million displaced. Infectious disease is rampant, including cholera and diphtheria, for insight on the impact war has had on Yemeni children, I reached out to Fuzia Shafiq. Shafiq is a country director for UNICEF in Yemen. She spoke to me by Skype from Sana'a. The situation that children face in Yemen is, is awful. I've, I've been reading the statistics, and I, I, I gather that um, since 2015, there have been something like 10,000 civilians killed in Yemen, of whom 
half are children and some, something like on the order of 400,000 children in Yemen are facing starvation. It's a terrible situation for children in Yemen today. You're absolutely right. Unfortunately, in any um, disaster, be it man-made or natural, children um, and women uh, tend to be the most vulnerable uh, people and, 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 and affected uh, more than the general population. Um, so in Yemen, the situation of children, even pre-conflict, was not the best in the region. In fact, it was just uh, the worst amongst all the countries in this particular region. But the conflict really has taken a very huge um, uh, toll on, on, on children in, 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 in every way. So you're very right. Um, you mentioned uh, the number of child casualties uh, due to the conflict in the last three years. But David, if you were to look at the number of children who died due to preventable causes that are not linked to conflict, but are linked to the fact that the social services have really suffered. Um, so in a country where almost half of the health facilities are not functional or only partially functional. If you look at the number of deaths due to preventable causes, uh, it uh, reflects a much higher uh, number than the number that you see um, coming from direct effect of the conflict. Although we have tried our best to maintain, for example, the immunization coverages uh, in the country to the pre-conflict level, uh, a relatively good coverage at the national level doesn't mean that every area in the country has, has the same level of, uh, of coverage. So there are pockets where the immunization coverage has drastically reduced in the last uh, three years. And that is why now we are beginning to see outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases like measles and diphtheria. Um, you know, you are aware of the cholera outbreak that we had last year. where also um, a significant proportion of the suspected cholera and acute watery diarrhea cases were amongst children. And, um, and, and this is also um, a reflection of the collapse of the, of the water system that is, again, adversely affecting children to a disproportionate uh, degree. Fuzio, let's get back to the, the outbreak of cholera and diphtheria and, and other infectious diseases in a moment. But I'd like to ask you, what's the situation at the current time in Yemen public hospitals? What's the situation with drugs and, and anesthetics and... Uh, you know, personnel. And I'm wondering as well, we can get to this, whether hospitals are being actually targeted. Right now, we are looking at a, um, we're looking at a health system where the operational cost, you know, the cost that the hospitals need to buy, to pay for their water bills and electricity and day-to-day -day running of the hospital, that cost has not been available for the hospitals for over 18 months. In addition, since October 2016, most of the health staff, especially in the northern part of the country, has not received their salaries. So with no operational cost and no manpower that is getting paid regularly, you can just imagine how difficult it is to keep the health facilities and the hospitals running. Now, on top of that, um, because of all the difficulties that there are in bringing supplies into the country, um, from various ports and then transportation within the country, given all the insecurity, supplies also are not always available where they are needed. And I have to really praise the health uh, staff of, uh, of the country in that in many, many places you will find staff continuing to show up to work and provide services when they haven't received salaries in months and they are suffering um, and really struggling to make ends meet for their own families. Yet where, where there is need, they still show up to work for a few hours a day, maybe for fewer days in a week, but they still make an effort. 
Um, yes, unfortunately, we have seen hospitals, ambulances, health workers, health facilities, other related infrastructure affected by the conflict, um, being um, either damaged or destroyed, um, health staff being injured or even in some instances killed because of the ongoing conflict. Um, and that, of course, is, uh, is, a, is a very sad uh, and unfortunate side of the conflict as well. And the, Ye the Yemen Data Project, um, I'm not sure who the Yemen Data Project is, but I've read a report of theirs saying that a third of one third of 17,000 airstrikes have targeted non-military targets. And the Norwegian Refugee Council has recently said, we abhor the ongoing use of violence to intimidate the civilian population. So has, has the Saudi-led coalition t targeted hospitals? David, I'm at this point not able to confirm the figures that you just mentioned. I would have to see which source you're quoting. But certainly there have been um, several instances of not only hospitals and health facilities, but also schools, um, water uh, and sanitation infrastructure, and some other civilian sites, uh, not some, but many, many other civilian sites also affected by, uh, by the conflict. And um, here I'd also like to mention that when, when this happens, um, of course, it leads to people moving from areas that are at risk to areas where they feel they can be safer. And so Yemen has, um, has had up to 3.5 million people internally displaced at certain points during uh, the last three years. Some people have returned home, but many re still remain internally displaced. And that further uh, aggravates the situation. Tell me about the cholera situation, uh, Fuzia Shafiq, at this moment in Yemen. Um, I've, the World Health Organization last year said Yemen was experiencing the world's worst cholera outbreak. What's the situation right now? So, um, David, um, in the last, since the beginning of this year, the number of cases, suspected cases that are being reported has steadily been, been going down. Of cholera. Of cholera, of suspected cholera, because remember, David, we are working in a in an environment where it's not possible to test and confirm all cases, and so uh, the high numbers that we speak of are. Uh, I think it's important to 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 clarify that they are suspected cholera uh, or acute watery diarrhea. Not all have been uh, confirmed. The laboratory function in the country. Um, is not as it should be. The availability of the rapid diagnostic tests uh, that can be used at the service delivery point has not been optimal last year. And so all, um, so, so as many cases as should have been tested were not able to. And then as I was just mentioning, the health staff are not always um, as uh, particular about adhering to the case definition as they should be. Yes, we have seen a dramatic decline in the number of cases that are being reported daily and weekly, and they continue to go down. Around five weeks ago, we had the first week um, since the beginning of the outbreak break, where only a thousand suspected cases were reported. Throughout throughout the country, or in in what in, in what geographic area? Throughout the country. And, um, and it has continued to go down. Um, however, uh, David, our biggest concern at the moment is that many of the factors that uh, were at play in, in, uh, in the explosive outbreak that we have, uh, many of them are still at work. Um, the sanitation system still is not uh, where it should be. Uh, there are problems uh, with the solid waste disposal in the country. There are uh, practices at household level 
that are not optimal and can put population uh, at higher risk of, uh, of contracting cholera and the health services certainly aren't where they should be. We are preparing ourselves and the system and the people uh, for the rainy season that has begun, but this year the rains so far have been below average. Um, as you know, when you have rains, uh, the chances of having waterborne diseases uh, also increases, especially given the, uh, the situation of the water and sanitation system. And so we have been preparing and putting in place a preparedness system to make sure that we are able to detect any, any increases in cases as soon as possible and react to it uh, even before that happens. So, for example, what UNICEF are doing right now is that we're looking at the weekly and biweekly rain forecast. And wherever we are expecting more than average rain, we are ensuring that households are informed um, on, on, on key ways of protecting families uh, from cholera. And we are also in the same areas making sure that the water is treated at source and at household level so that it's clean and safe. And we're also putting the health uh, centers on standby so that they can begin to provide services at a very short notice should we see an increase in, 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 in cholera cases. So at, at the moment, our bigger concern is not the cases that are being reported, but basically bracing ourselves to react as fast as we can and as effectively as we can should there be uh, a third wave of cholera uh, approaching along with the rainy season. And other infectious diseases like diphtheria and measles? Yes, and uh, if you remember, malaria and dengue, not now, but uh, when the season starts. So, yes, um, what we have done, you specifically asked about measles and diphtheria. So what we've done for both of these is um, we have looked at the data that we have uh, of uh, where immunization coverage has fallen due to the conflict and service availability, and we've identified all the districts that we think are at higher risk um, because uh, where children are at higher risk of, of getting measles or diphtheria. And we have com conducted additional vaccination campaigns to vaccinate those children uh, with measles, rubella vaccine, and also with diphtheria. What's the current incidence rates of diphtheria and measles, if you've got that data for me? As of last reports, we had around uh, upwards of 2,000 uh, cases of diphtheria and around 60-plus deaths. Um, which is much higher than we had seen last year at this point and the year before. Um, for measles, the cases and the deaths are very localized, as they are for diphtheria as well, and that is why we are able to identify and, 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 and conduct vaccination campaigns specifically in those, uh, in those areas. Getting back to this figure that I cited a little earlier, uh, Fuzia, uh, 400,000 children facing starvation in Yemen. Is this accurate? So, David, these are, these are estimates and they are based on surveys that are done. When we are able to do more surveys, we are able to have more accurate data. When we are not able to do as many surveys, we rely more on older surveys and therefore older data. So as of the last estimates that were done, there are around 2.1 million children in country who are acutely malnourished. And of these 2.1 million, 400,000 children are severely malnourished. The severely malnourished children are at seven times the risk of dying compared to a normal child. So a severely malnourished child, if he gets diarrhea or measles or any other illness, he or she is at a much higher risk of, 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 of dying than, than a normal child who's not malnourished. 
So yes, you are right. Our estimates tell us that there are around 400 severely malnourished children in the country who need to be uh, treated. And we have an extensive program in place. And if you're interested, I can speak to it uh, a little. Yes, yes, I, I would be interested in that. I mean, the, the, the situation with Yemen is kind of like a textbook example of how a country that already is challenged economically in terms of its development status and particularly the situation for children, how that whole situation becomes just so much more acute in, in, in time of war. And the war in Yemen has been going on for three years now, and services that were already... Uh, you know, not, not not fully functional are being pushed to the limit by this war. Yes, you're absolutely right, David. That is that is true. The first step is to actually find out which child is malnourished and which child is not. And in a country like Yemen, where the stunting rates, the the chronic malnutrition is so high, and and so is uh, acute malnutrition. You know, all children are are small and they're all thin. And so, um, so unlike other countries where, you know, you would be able to see a child and just by looking at a child say, oh, this child is not as healthy as, as children should be, it's, it's a little difficult in Yemen. Uh, a parent would not automatically, you know, look at a child and say, oh, my child is much smaller and thinner than other children and maybe something's wrong, I need to get the child checked. So that doesn't really happen. And so the first challenge is to actually go out to the communities, um, screen the children and identify the ones who are malnourished. Um, there are around th more than 3,000 health facilities where uh, UNICEF is supporting what is called an outpatient um, um, a therapeutic feeding program, which is a place where children are taken and they receive from the health worker after screening two-week supplies of uh, ready-to-use uh, therapeutic food, uh, and then they come back after two weeks to have the supplies replenished. Children who are um, who are even worse off, the malnourished children with complications are not treated as outpatient but are treated at uh, special feeding, um, therapeutic feeding centers and stabilization centers where they are admitted and they are provided care 24-7 until they are uh, able to be discharged and be treated as, as, as outpatients. It seems astonishing to me, Fuzia Shafiq, that the international community is... Um, pouring aid money into Yemen, certainly I would imagine not in sufficient quantity, there always more is required, but aid, aid money is going in um, into Yemen, while at the same time uh, certain very powerful elements within the international community are providing arms to the, to the Saudi-led coalition. So on the one hand, they're providing arms and support to the Saudi-led coalition, and Canada is amongst those, uh, while at the same time uh, crying out that, you know, development money has to pour into Yemen as well. And uh, so there seems to be a contradiction. You're right. Uh, you know, Yemenis uh, want what, what, what everybody wants. They want, uh, they want peace in their country. They want to be allowed to go on with their lives, you know, make a living for their families, send their kids to schools, take care of their families, have meals. Um, and have uh, have normal lives, and so it is really sad um, to be in Sana and um, and see um, around you um, uh, families that are suffering day in and day out. And and of course there is this um, there is the sad fact that um, 
um, we have a we have a country that is in civil war um, and um, and and is also at war with the with external powers. Um, but you know, but all but all that people want is um, is uh, is to have peace and and calm return to their country again. Uh, Ramadan is approaching fast. Uh, we expect it to start uh, on the 15th or the 16th of uh, this month. Um, Ramadan is uh, the holiest month of the of the Muslim calendar, um, and Yemenis are hoping that the parties to conflict, both uh, Yemenis and international, would use that as an opportunity to agree on uh, on, on ceasefire and to agree on uh, returning to the negotiation table and uh, use the month um, to to give Yemeni some some um, rest uh, from what has been going on in the last three three months and explore um, how to have you know how this can be resolved without continuing the war I think uh, people who are not in Yemen who are looking at it from a distance uh, should uh, should understand the suffering that the people are going through in the country um, if I can just quote one figure there, you know, 60% of Yemenis are using coping mechanisms at the moment, meaning they are borrowing money, they are um, selling things, they do not know where their next meal is coming from, they are eating less or skipping meals. Um, so so the, the amount of suffering going on in the country is really immense and um, people need to be aware of it, um, talk about it and um, and whatever voice ordinary people have or influential people have, use it to say war is not the answer and uh, a peaceful resolution is the only answer to this conflict. Fuzia Shafiq, I'd like to thank you for joining me on the Green Blues show. Thank you. Thank you for having me and thank you for your interest in Yemen. Fuzia Shafiq is Chief for Health and Nutrition at the Yemen Country Office of the UN Children's Fund, UNICEF, in Sana'a, Yemen. Read more about Little Yemen at greenplanetmonitor.net. And that's it for today's edition of the Green Blues Show. The latest news, a bit of blues. Listen to us on CKW 95.9 FM, University of Winnipeg Radio here in Winnipeg, and at CKUW.net. Subscribe to our podcast at greenplanetmonitor.net or around the world on iTunes. Pass the word along. The Green Blues Show is created by Earth Chronicle Productions in cooperation with CKUW. 95.9 FM. We are both based in Winnipeg, Canada. I'm David Kattenberg. See you again next time.